This is Starting Somewhere, a podcast from the University of Melbourne, all about internships, finding one, landing it, and making the most of the experience. I'm Buffy Gorilla. I dragged my second internship out for nine months before realizing it wasn't turning into a job. And now I'm host of this podcast. I'm Ben Pawson. I turned my internship into a job, but only after seven informational interviews. And now I'm co-host of this podcast. So we're clearly the best people to help you start somewhere. This is it. Grab your tissues. It's our farewell episode, and it may be the most important one of all. Turning that internship into a job. Yes, it is possible. I did it, and you can too. We'll give you the skinny on how to set yourself up to be in the best possible position to get a job. And in this episode, you'll hear from the familiar voices and more wise words from people you've met along the way. And not every internship turns into a job. I learned that the hard way. Part of me thought, if I keep hanging around, they'll definitely want to give me a job. But it wasn't until I pursued other opportunities, got more experience, did my dream jobs come calling, working here at Uni Melbs and for the ABC. But every internship should give you that crucial experience that will make you a better, more connected, more worthy candidate for the job you do end up going for. Or basically, we've already taught you everything you needed to know in our previous episodes. So we're done. It's nap time for us. See ya. Wait, you want more? We're on it. We found a way to do it. And some of the people we've talked to did it too. So... Let's hear what worked for them. I got rejected quite a few times and that was really hard going, but kind of like, oh, well, this is a good internship, but I don't think anything's going to come of it. And then they offered me a job, which I was really surprised by. And I had to go into like this little, little office and I thought I was going to be told off, but they offered me a job. (laughs) Here at the Herald Sun. Yeah, here at the Herald Sun as a editorial assistant. Yeah, that was really exciting. Congratulations. Are you going to take it? I can't wait to find out. In the meantime, here's some data. I love me some data. Do internships get you to a job quicker or better? So the research says yes, but this research is from America and Portugal. So bear that in mind. It says several short internships help people find jobs and paid internships are more likely to lead to a job. That's good news. If internships are an option for you, they are good for more stuff too. Basically, in the study that I did, I followed up with students who had just completed an internship prior to graduation and asked them to rate how their experience was beneficial in about seven different areas. So things like goal setting, professional goal setting, professional skill development, actual job search, you know, did this lead to a job, networking, different areas like that. Essentially, as students reported back on different internships they did, and a lot of students do both types of internships together, one of the things that came out was that unpaid internships are more beneficial in terms of connecting back to academics and some of the things that are going on in the classroom. Paid internships were more likely to result in in a better job search outcome or 
specific skill development related to your professional area. And then both types of internships were helpful in things like confirming a field of interest or rejecting a field of interest, networking, self-efficacy, and goal setting. That's Andrew Crane from the University of Georgia. And what a relief. That study backs up what we've been saying in all the other episodes of Starting Somewhere. Phew. By now, we've spoken to so many amazing interns. Remember Kate Mellett from ANZ? Well, she turned her internship into a position on their graduate program. This was a paid internship, and anecdotally, this confirms Andrew's research. At the end of the internship, I made a presentation to my line manager, all the things that I'd done, completed, achieved, what I'd learned over the internship. And I think that contributed to whether they recommended me, perhaps or not, for the graduate program. And then after that had finished, perhaps about a month later, I got a call with an offer for the graduate program for this year. Well, congratulations. Did you intend to or want to do that when you first started the internship program? So definitely the internship, I just wanted to see what ANZ was like, whether I fitted into the culture, something I wanted to continue and learn more. At the end of the internship, I definitely wanted that. I wanted to get into the graduate program, so I was definitely hanging out for that call, hoping... And I know a couple of the other graduates are also interns from last year as well. So they would have had the same process. Trying it out is one of the benefits of internships. But Kate's transition from intern to a secure position in an ASX 100 company might be atypical. And not just because 80% of internships are unpaid, but mostly because we millennials are plagued with the question of job security and access. When you hear negative portrayals of the millennials as narcissistic, I think that's misrecognizing a real change, which is that really they've been compelled to think of themselves as the site in which job security and job opportunity comes from. It's it's not that your boss is going to hire you and promise to train you and and you'll rise up through the ranks. It's more that you're going to have to present yourself as this go-getter and this, this almost personal CV of a personality that will help you navigate this world in which there's still lots of opportunities and having a degree really does help. In fact, it helps more than ever. You just heard from Dan Woodman, an associate professor of sociology in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Dan has been leading a study that has tracked two generations of Australians into adulthood. And? It's really, really tough, really tough, tougher than it's ever been for people who don't finish high school or or even don't go on to some further education but it's not enough on its own. So you need to present yourself as somebody who who has built other skills, including workplace skills and those soft skills, but also as somebody who's the type of person who will continue to develop those skills and progress across the life course. So this is one of the big changes that really lies behind some of the negative stereotypes about the millennials, but it's really them responding just as they have to to the conditions we've given them. Can young people fight against the hand they've been dealt? And why is it so hard to go out and get a job with just an undergrad degree? Josh Healy, Senior Research Fellow in the Center for Workplace Leadership, explains. 
The unpaid internship has become a more prevalent thing, I suppose, as competition for entry-level jobs has intensified. You see this being something that develops when you have a lot of relatively highly skilled people looking for a kind of competitive advantage, okay? And in Australia, at least, we've been training a lot of people at university level, and there's been a big run-up in just the total size of the university system and the vocational system, okay? So the number of people coming through has increased a lot. And that means that uh, there tends to be a bit more competition. Now, that pressure in terms of the supply, so to speak, I'm doing the, the scare quotes thing, that has met up with a period in Australia of weakness in demand. So that's particularly occurred for the graduate level job market. Okay, so it's gotten harder to get a good full-time career job uh, straight off the bat of uh, getting an undergraduate qualification. But it's not all futile attempts to move your life forward or achieve your career goals. It may just take a bit longer. And we've armed you with the information to help you feel like it's not you. It's the times. I sound like my grandma. So if you need to stand out, one thing that will help is being connected, having personal relationships with the people who are hiring people like you. And this has been reflected by just about every one of the 50 people we've interviewed. Network, 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 network. And network some more. So without further ado, the crash course in networking. Network. Hi, my name is Aisha Ahmad. Uh, I am 17 years old. Oh, hello. Yes. Yes, so... Um, hello, my name is Chelsea Parrish, I'm a returned Australian volunteer network manager for the Australian Volunteers Programme. I'm Grace Chen, I'm studying actual commerce, majoring in economics and finance. I'm currently in third year. You're an intern, going into a new company, maybe your first office environment ever. It's going to be overwhelming. And building your network is not going to be a top priority. But what if we suggest looking at it like one of the people in your new office is going to give you a job? Maybe not now, but sometime in the future. And it might not be the people you think. As Mary Trumbull, a client solutions manager from LinkedIn Australia, is going to explain. Does that change your mind? Absolutely. So taking it sort of a step back, I think... We overthink what a network is and we often think it's people who are higher up than us and it's people that we only meet through jobs. But in fact, your network starts building way before that. So a bit of a plug here, but if you jump onto students.linkedin.com, there's a whole handbook about using LinkedIn to, to get your network and how to interview. But essentially it's about you want three types of connections in your network. And the first starts with the advocate, and that's someone that knows you on a personal level. Now, we've all got those people. We don't need to start a job to get those people in our life, but they're your sounding board. So for me, it was my dad. So before I applied for a job or sent off a CV or a cover letter, it was, hey, dad, do you think this would be right for me? So you start with your advocate and you can ask them questions about, you know, how a certain job will line up to your personal values. The next one is the strategic in. So it's the well-connected individual who might be a friend of a parent. It might be a former school teacher or it might be someone that you meet in the workplace. So these are the people you want to pay attention to. It can be as simple as if you do start an internship, 
saying good morning to the leaders every day. Don't be frightened of them. They're just real people and they love that engagement because you never know in 12 months time, if your internship comes to an end, you can say, you know, hey, Rob, who might be the managing director, I'm still really keen to stay in this industry. Have you got anyone who can help me? Because I guarantee these people in these industries are so well connected. And then the third is the subject matter expert. So someone who can offer superior insight on a specific industry. So it might be, you know, if you're looking to go into the medical field, it's someone who's really, really in the weeds there. If you're deciding between, say, physio and occupational therapy, it's it's the person that can point you in the right direction. The worst that can happen is someone doesn't respond. But Mary's a professional networker. She helps people and companies build their networks day in and day out. How can little old me do some networking? Here's how Vivian Gleason leveraged his connections. The last thing I did while I was there was actually help Oz Biotech run a Australia-China Invest Seminar in Shanghai over two days. And while I was there, I met David Anderson and Jeff Dunheim. And Jeff Dunheim is the CEO of Burnett. So I, It all comes full circle. Yeah, it all goes full circle. And I walked up to him and I was like, you know what? I'd just love to work on your portfolio. I'd love to work on any of these assets. And then we just talked about some case studies. And he was like, yeah, all right, come back and we'll put you on a trial. And I went on a probation period for about three months. And then after that, hired. Those people we've met sound like the strategic type of networking contacts that Mary Trumbull described. And Viv had done his research. He knew who they were. He knew what assets they had, and he knew that he would love working on them. That must have made talking to them a whole lot easier. So do your research, like Haley Smedding of Tandem Partners HR. So when I was at Deloitte, one of the human capital partners actually was an ex-Olympian. And for me, going into my partner interview, still within the recruitment process... I kind of sat in the interview and we were talking about the program and the company and then she was like, do you have any questions? And I took a very personal approach and asked her about her previous experiences as an Olympian and I feel like that was my point of difference from a candidate perspective because it showed that I did my previous research but I wanted to get to know her on a bit more of a personal level because I wanted to understand who I was actually going to be working for rather than just the organisation at large. So making it a little bit personal um, and kind of picking out each individual's point of difference can be quite good. I like to think I'm pretty good at the first stage of networking when I meet someone IRL, but I've not done a lot of formal LinkedIn networking. So if you are unclear how to navigate making certain connections, here's Mary Trumbull again with a solid, non-creepy approach. So our rule generally across LinkedIn is don't connect with someone unless you're going to have a reason to stay connected. So it doesn't matter if you've met them or not, but when you request to connect with someone, you can add a personal note. So it's okay to request a connection who you've never met, but just explain why you're reaching out. You know, it might be, I'm interested in perhaps pursuing a career similar to yours, so I just wanted to stay connected on your journey. Nice. Yeah. And it's the same when receiving connections. You know, it's, it's not a numbers game. It's not about how many Instagram likes you get. It is thinking about, will this person be of value to me in the future? Am I interested in what they have to offer? We've been putting the LinkedIn profiles of many of the people we've featured on Starting Somewhere in the show notes, but think carefully. Just because Mary Trumbull sounds awesome, it's not necessarily a reason to connect to her. We asked Sarah Webster, a University of Melbourne student who's doing a music and math degree in a pretty intense undergrad, how she uses LinkedIn. This is what she said. 
at first I was sort of embarrassed by it because I felt like, oh, I don't really have a whole lot of formal experience. Here I am trying to look all professional and and everything, and I didn't have a lot of contacts. But I sort of realised that I, I just have to get into it. You've got to start so, somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. Starting somewhere. <laughs> Great name for a podcast. Um, yeah, and then over time I gradually built up my network through friends, people from school, and the more confident I got, the more people I started adding. Sometimes coming to the realisation that networking is a career must can be a slow burn, like it was for journalist Anders Furs. Really got serious about LinkedIn at the start of my master's degree, so I went along to this workshop that the Melbourne Uni careers people gave on LinkedIn and setting up a profile. I already had a profile, but I didn't really know how... A lot of people don't really know how to use it. I didn't really either. And then they demystified it for me and I realised, oh, you can request introductions to people who you might have mutual connections with. You can post content to it, all this other stuff. And I think, um, again, with cover letters and resumes, it's very easy to overthink it. As long as you're not... I think you just check in there every once in a while and, you know, as long as you're keeping active, just checking in, I guess. And through LinkedIn, I have received gig opportunity, not a full-time ongoing work, but I have received commissions for pieces from people who I'm connected with, which is pretty cool. So it has, the system worked for me a couple of, at least a couple of times. You know what my next thing is? I haven't done this yet. I'm going to challenge myself by asking for a testimonial from a client. Ooh. You can add testimonials yes, to LinkedIn. Yes, you can. And I'm a bit nervous about doing this, but we'll see. I've never done this before, but I'm excited. But how do you use this network? It might just be for intelligence or mentoring, which we'll get to in a moment, or finding out who's up to what. But sometimes it gets real. Viv Gleason again. I've always known that, yeah, it really is who you know, even in science and, and building those networks, getting talking to people, even in the pure basic sciences is critically important. You need to be able to bounce ideas off people's heads. You need to be able to leverage resources across multiple fields and especially with scientific hiring it's very often oh who do you know that could fill this role when we're writing the grant and they just cheekily write you into the grant so you need to be in the right place at the right time and if you cast a broad enough net people will be thinking about you when those opportunities arise Once you've established a solid network and everyone is present and accounted for, you might want to think about adding a mentor to your stable. Identifying a mentor can be daunting. What even is a mentor? We approached three mentor superheroes and asked them what one is, what you should ask for, and what they want from you. Glyn, Lynn, and Colin. Breaking that down, they are Glyn Davis, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, Colin McLeod is a professor at the Melbourne Business School and also the academic director of the Master of Entrepreneurship program. And Lynn Kazali is a speaker, author and facilitator. First up, Lynn with a definition. We talk about mentors as someone who's done it before you. And so they can give you that direct advice versus a coach who may not have done it, but tries to help you uncover mm. or discover it. So a mentor in thinking that they've already done it, which to me says, work out what your questions are, ask them, and then listen to what they say, and then go do it. 
But how does the relationship work? How do you even make that approach? Do I need a mentoring wing person? Colin McLeod lays out how to test the waters with a potential mentor, and we find out if anyone has made any uncomfortable requests. People have asked me for jobs. People have asked me for money. Funnily enough, uh, one of the things I do find, I wouldn't say offensive, but it sort of uh, bugs me a bit, is when people do things like send you an email, love to catch up for a cup of coffee and to pick your brain. It's like you've not actually indicated anything about what I know that you're interested in. You've not indicated anything about my work that's prompted this email. You've not indicated anything about the type of questions you want me to respond to, which would help me think about whether, firstly, whether I want to do it, and secondly, how to make a better contribution. And thirdly, how long you think this is likely to take and how often you want to do it. To be honest, I probably get a couple of hundred of those emails a year. I send that reply back to all of them. You haven't told me this, you haven't told me this, you haven't told me that. I'd say one in 50 responds to my response email. So it's a bit like, I want mentorship if it's really easy. So clearly, that's not how you want to approach your mentor. But just to make it extra clear, because this is important, here's what you do want to do. And what you want more than anything as a mentor is for people to show that they respect your time, they respect your knowledge. But if they respect your time and they respect your knowledge, they should respect enough to know that if you think they're worth investing in, you'll come to their conclusion. If you want to offer them a job, you'll come to their conclusion. You don't need to be prompted. And I think in many cases, that short-term need for a job or a short-term need for money might undervalue what could be actually a lifelong relationship that could have a lot more value. If asking for jobs or money is a no-no, what else is going to put your mentor offside? Lynn Kazali with a pet peeve. I find it really frustrating when I'll be talking with some students and they're just storytelling. They're just going blah, 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 blah. But think, what's your question? We're having a coffee or this is our meeting or this is our call. What are the things you want answers to? I don't need all of the background or all of the context. What's the stuff that you want answers to? Let's work on that. So be quite pointed, I think, with your questions to a mentor or advisor like that. Besides those great tips, what do you also think that a mentee should do in preparation for choosing and meeting a mentor? Coming back to some of that why. Why do I need a mentor? Where am I now? Where do I want to get to? Why have I chosen you? And to do some homework about that mentor. I remember being kind of interviewed by a mentee as if the job was mine to get. Now, the relationship is always mutually beneficial, but I wanted to know why they wanted to be mentored by me. So I think get your act together. <laughs> be prepared for that conversation of what gap are you trying to close, which is a bit of a coaching conversation, mm -hmm. but where are you now and where do you want to get to and what's the thing that you're hoping this mentor will be able to help you with? If you can articulate that early on or start with that, then who knows where it can go from there. But I think having some focus is key to getting the most out of that relationship. And if Colin and Lynn haven't convinced you to seek out a mentor, look no further than the wise counsel of Glenn Davis. His reassuring advice may leave you with the feeling that you can and should find a mentor ASAP. We make sure that everybody has access to somebody, a mentor, a coach, depending on where they are and what they need. It's really important. Someone they can talk to out of the workplace who they can be frank with and not have to worry about the consequences. And that's what we're trying to offer to students as well. It's the same logic of who can I talk to? Who can help me think through what 
the opportunities are and how I might contribute. So the mentoring programs that we've been developing are all about providing that opportunity to every student at the campus. And what about a young Glenn Davis? Did he have a mentor that helped him along his way to his welcoming office in the Towers of Academia? My honest thesis supervisor, whose name was Donald Horne, was a brilliant mentor and friend and supporter. And I had exactly the same privilege as my PhD, where uh, Patrick Weller, who was my principal supervisor, though not my only one, turned out to be a great uh, colleague, as did a number of other people. So I was very fortunate in that. And I think it's really important. And I've tried through my career, therefore, to do the same for others, not just people who are my students, but people I work with and others. And it's actually one of the great privileges of life as you get older and you get to more senior roles, you get to contribute to other people's development and you can help encourage, support and mentor them. And I found that hugely rewarding. So often when you act as a mentor, the people you're mentoring think that you're doing them a great favor. Actually, you're learning a lot. You're giving back. You're contributing. It's a real privilege to do it. And I've hugely enjoyed it. It's pretty reassuring to hear that mentors have mentors. But what about people who might not have access to mentors? Anna Lemka from the Maribyrnong and Mooney Valley Local Learning Network tells us about their mentoring program and gives us a bit of the theory of networking that shows us, as with other things, it's a good idea to check your privilege. The benefits of the mentoring program is that a young person expands their network. So there is something called the bonding network and the bridging network. The bonding network is something where you're traditionally connected to your peers, your family, And then there's the bridging network, which is basically, if you look at circles, it's another layer to a circle. If the young person is in the middle, then you've got the bonding network around them. That's family, friends, anyone there immediately connected. And then you've got the bridging network. And the bridging network, again, is more reserved for privileged people in many ways because their parents are working at a high level and are able to connect their daughters or sons to opportunities that a lot of other young people don't have access to. So what we're trying to do with the mentor program is providing those young people that don't have access to those bridging networks with the opportunity to connect to a role model in their life, um, someone that is of professional background. So that's our criteria for anyone becoming a mentor. And if people want to volunteer to become a mentor, how do they get in touch? If you want to volunteer for the Maribyrnong and Mooney Valley Lender Youth Internship Initiative, best way to go about it is go on our website, which is mmvllen.org.au. When you think of your friend group, you probably have your core group of friends. And extending out from there, you have a range of layers. The friends you know from primary school, the ones you do sports with, and your professional network is similar. There are layers with varying degrees of importance, but you need to nurture these professional relationships. Once you've got your network, sometimes you need a little something special to help you along. Lucky for us, Warren Fraze, Senior Advisor, Experiential Learning, Global Leadership, and Employability at the University of Melbourne knows the word for this career, je ne sais quoi. There's a great professor at Stanford called Professor Crumboltz who came up with a term called happenstance. And what he meant by that is to put yourself in a situation where you're kind of creating things that might happen, but you don't know what they mm-hmm. might be. So being connected means you might go to an event as part of a professional association, for example. The fact that you're in the room with a number of employers could lead to some great 
contacts and some good connections. But we don't know what the outcome is going to be. You might attend two or three of those and not get anywhere. Mm -hmm. But the fourth one you attend may just be the person that you want to speak to and maybe the best person to refer you to somebody else. So it's positioning yourself in the right areas with the right people. And that's what we really encourage. Someone who was in all the right areas was Vivian Gleason. I went to absolutely everything. So every single careers day, every single networking event, every single industry event, either at Melbourne University or within the biotech industry in Australia. I volunteered for just about every event Oz Biotech ran. I put my name out there and my personal favorite thing that I did, and this is like my hot tip that I just want to pass on to everybody looking for a job. It's called informational interviewing. You basically just find someone on LinkedIn who has the job you want and you just send them a message and just say, look, can I buy you a coffee? Like, can I have 20 minutes of your time? Can we just talk about what you do, how you got into that role? Like, what's the role like? Do you think I'd be suited for that? Or what do you think I'd need to do to get to that role? And more often than not, that leads to something. So just making the face-to-face appearance and actually taking the time to talk to a person proves that you can string sentences together and, you know, you're not some online bot crawling for information. And it works out really, really well. And sure, it might take four or five, but after a while, you know, you're getting your name out there and people will start to think about you for certain roles. And more often than not, I get emails now, like, are you still looking for work? This could potentially be in your alley because so much of the scientific work in Australia is not on Seek. It's not on Indeed. It's not on any JODCB network. It's really just who you know. So get that LinkedIn account made and start talking to as many people as you possibly can. And how many informational interviews did you go on? I was actually really lucky. I I only had to do three and I didn't actually end up getting a job with any of them. I got my job through volunteering with Oz Biotech for Oz Biofest in Melbourne in 2016. I was walking around just handing out my card. I made these cheap little tacky cards with my name on it and Masters of Biotech student currently seeking opportunities. I have Masters of Journalism candidate business card as well, so I'm with you on that. But your arsenal should include more than a business card. How you present yourself in your LinkedIn profile is super important, and the work you do here will become a cheat sheet for another element of your arsenal. Mary Trumbull explains. Once you've filled out all the elements of the profile, that's when you want to go and finish with your summary. And your summary actually sits at the top. So it's that it's that really highly engaging first paragraph, first impression, essentially your elevator pitch, which is, you know, what would you say to someone if you had 30 seconds in an elevator together? And this is where I really encourage students to actually showcase their personality. So if you're a bit humorous, you know, or whatever it is, show that off because that's the impression you want to give. Just be you and then the rest of the profile will complement. I had to do my elevator pitch in an actual elevator, stuffed full of my fellow MBA students. It was at the end of a very tough day, and the smell of, shall we say, learning was ripe. So who better to test other people's elevator pitches? And no doubt business students should be across this trend. Ben rode the elevator at the Faculty of Business and Economics here at the University of Melbourne. And these are in no way conclusive findings or indications of the type of education you receive here. Who knows what an elevator pitch is, and would they care to give me their elevator pitch in an elevator? Do you know what an elevator pitch is? Not really. Okay, no problem. 
Do any of you know what an elevator pitch is? Uh, yeah. Would you care to give me your elevator pitch in the time it takes to go up? Uh, I'm very hardworking. Yeah, hire me. <laughs> ah, ah, I'm not good at it, sorry. Do any of you know what an elevator pitch is? Oh, uh, yeah. Do you have one? No, I don't. Hi there, everyone. Hi. Do any of you know what an elevator pitch is? An elevator pitch. No one at all. Do you guys know what an elevator pitch is? Have you ever done one? Would you have the time to go up again and give me your elevator pitch? Uh, okay. All right, let's take one more ride. So, hi, I'm Madeline. I'm a bachelor of student studying marketing and management. So, I've been doing a lot of internships such as in the accounting field and also some uh, project planning job in the uni. So, um, my interests are in careers and employability and also student engagement. That's brilliant. That's really good. And then I say, oh, I know someone in student engagement and employment, and I can help you out. So, go on, do you want to try doing your elevator pitch? We've only got two floors left. <laughs> and stepping out of the elevator, once you find a company, say NAB, standing outside giving random employees your elevator pitch is not the only way to get your foot in the door. There may be other ways to get into that organization. Rem Zambassis, who now manages NAB's intern program, initially made a beeline for their graduate program, but didn't make the cut. He didn't lose hope, and you shouldn't either. There are many ways to get into the fortress. A sole focus, I guess, on getting into NAB and starting your career at NAB just in the graduate program probably limits your opportunities to join the business. And so for me, it's about considering what else is on offer more broad than that. And that now includes the internships, and it also includes the about 2,500 entry-level roles that we hire for every single year. Even though you are armed with all the advice from this series, you may still hit some rejection. But as you gain more experience, you'll build your confidence in your LinkedIn profile, and hopefully employers will start coming to you. That's been my dream. Oh, such my dream. And for some of you, it will be easy. And one day, you'll be in a position to help someone else get started somewhere. So is Hamish going to take the job? That is very much up to up to debate. I'm about to start my thesis, and I'm sure people who are listening who have done a thesis know how tough and time-consuming it can be. As I said before, you know, I'm nowhere nearly as, as organised as some of my friends who can't actually access these unpaid internships. <laughs> so I'll have to really think about how I'm going to organise my life before I um, take it on. We all have choices, and as interns, you have a lot of power, more than you think. When you are working for free, you don't owe much to anyone. And in this competitive, uncertain market, you need all the power you can get. That uncertainty makes networking, staying in touch, and doing the best you can to impress while you're there even more important. And who better to wrap up season one of Starting Somewhere than Vice Chancellor Glenn Davis with this wisdom nugget. The things that I've noticed about lots of people's careers is that people are always in a hurry and they're nervous and ambitious and all of that makes sense. And yet I think the single piece of advice that would have been useful is just chill out, calm down, it'll work itself out, don't be too anxious about what follows, just enjoy the moment, live in the moment and try and get some 
sense of achievement from what you're doing now rather than always be thinking about what's ahead. That's really hard advice. It's easy advice to give when you get older and you can look back. It's very tough. That's why I wonder whether anybody would take that advice. But it is actually true for most of us that our lives will work out in really interesting ways. They won't work out as we plan, and that's a good thing. Imagine if you at 21 know what you were doing for the next 50 years, how dull that would be. So being willing to go with the flow a bit and being willing to understand that opportunities will come in unexpected ways and from unexpected people, and that's, that's a good thing and you should enjoy it, that seems to me where I'd be looking for advice. That's all from Ben and me. Thank you for joining us this season. A huge starting somewhere thank you to all our guests. Thank you for your stories and your honest accounts. We've had a blast making this series, and our fingers are crossed for you all. We both hope you get your start somewhere. Starting Somewhere is brought to you by the University of Melbourne External Relations Team. The producers and editors are Buffy Gorilla and Ben Pawson. Our supervising producer and original concept is from Dr. Andy Horvath. Thanks to everyone who has made Starting Somewhere a reality. Bye for now.